Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax with weird and wonderful science pettifogging your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. Welcome to the intended International Myalgic Encephalomyelitis Chronic Fatigue Syndrome Awareness Day edition, where I finally spoke with Anne Wilson, CEO of Emerge Australia. We re-recorded the interview. People with MECFS suffer from symptoms similar to many long COVID symptoms, such as brain fog, sore throats, headaches, stomach problems, chronic pain, and post-exertional malaise, amongst others. Myalgic encephalomyelitis was first described in 1955 after an outbreak of 292 members of the staff of the Royal Free Hospital in London. In Australia, the diagnosis and treatment of MECFS are currently based on the clinical guidelines which were last published in 2002. The clinical guidelines are also used to determine if you qualify for the disability support pension and if you qualify for the National Disability Insurance Scheme. The clinical guidelines were written as a draft last century and are based on discredited ideas that wrongly defined MECFS as a fear of exercise that needed to be treated with psychotherapy and graduated exercise. Since that time, there's been overwhelming evidence of the physical nature of MECFS, and there are several blood tests being developed. There are medications undergoing clinical trials this month aimed at MECFS problems observed with the mitochondria that convert food and oxygen into energy for our cells. Emerge Australia is an advocacy organisation for the voices of people suffering MECFS. I spoke with CEO Anne Wilson by Zoom and began by asking her... The draft guidelines came out in 98, and so they haven't been changed in really 24 years, even though it's only 20 years since they were formally adopted. It's a long time for the wrong information. Yes, it is. The reality is that the clinical guidelines were published in 2002. Nothing has been done and there's been no update since that time. And, you know, some would argue that there haven't been huge developments happen. But if you speak to our medical director and you speak to a lot of the scientists, there are developments happening all the time. And what has been absolutely conclusively proven is that two of the elements that are in the old guidelines, graded exercise therapy and cognitive behavioural therapy, do harm. And one does harm because it stigmatises patients as saying that their condition is psychosomatic, it's not real. The other is just harmful for people who've got MECFS. So in 2021, in the UK, NICE actually brought out new guidelines that exclude graded exercise therapy and cognitive behavioural therapy from their guidelines. What's critical is that the inclusion of post-exertional malaise, known as PEM, must be central to the diagnosis of MECFS, which it definitely isn't. It's not at the core of the old Australian guidelines and needs to be 
in future. So that's what a diagnostic guideline is. It, it, it helps guide clinicians to see whether if someone has got PEM and they're able to test for that, then that's pretty conclusive evidence that a person has got MECFS. There are obviously lots of other things that they have to test for, but that needs to be at the core and it is not at the core of current guidelines. And current guidelines, you know, guidelines need to be outdated as new information and new evidence comes to light. You can't just sit on your laurels and say, oh, 24 years ago we wrote a guideline and that'll be fine. And there's widespread discussion about the absolute critical need for Australia to have up-to-date clinical guidelines. The problem that we face is that uh, the production of clinical guidelines that are endorsed by the National Health and Medical Research Council cost a lot of money. And there is a process you have to go through. It's a good process, includes a thorough a methodological review of all of the evidence. It includes consultation with all stakeholders and it costs money, a lot of money. And certainly Emerge Australia is pushing forward in seeking allocations of funding for the production of clinical guidelines for MECFS from next year. And it'll take about two years to complete the process. So just because people say, oh, well, you know, why haven't you got a clinical guideline? You just don't write a guideline. You, you, a doctor can't say, oh, I'll, I'll write a, guide, a guideline. It's just not possible. They can write a guideline. They can do something for their practice. They can do something for themselves. But something that's going to be accredited and adopted by the various colleges and acceptable to the NH and MRC has to follow their processes. And I guess having that sort of authoritative document is also something that would help if people with MECFS need to claim for Centrelink or for the National Disability Insurance Scheme. Well, definitely from a diagnostic perspective, yes, because if you've got guidelines and Emerge Australia are putting together pathways to go onto the desktops of GPs around Australia, if you've got those things in place, it helps that for the GP is then able to do what they have to do, follow the guidelines, follow the processes and protocols and make a diagnosis. And, and that's what we want because without a diagnosis, no one can get anything. This is the case. And I think it's been a, a long a problem. I think we've gone from where GPs used to deny the existence of MECFS and now a lot of them accept it, but say, well, I don't know what to do. I'm not an expert. So they really need the education. Oh, look, the, and, and all of that's been fueled by COVID. We've had a lot of criticism over the last 12 months where people have said, oh, you know, you're focusing on COVID. But COVID's been like a magic pill for MECFS because it has helped us to shine a light on MECFS because of the similarities between long COVID and MECFS, apart from the unique symptoms of long COVID that have to do with cardiovascular and respiratory issues that are quite serious, most of the symptoms that people will experience, you could argue that they are MECFS because they're identical. And you get post-exertional malaise, which from 
Emerge Australia's point of view and the point of view of clinicians around the country is central to a diagnosis. And you'll find that more and more clinicians, when they learn about what to do, will diagnose people with MECFS slash long COVID because they're really one in the same when it comes to the majority of symptoms. And would you be able to briefly explain what post-exertional malaise is for the listener? Post-exertional malaise is when the smallest little thing completely zaps your energy. Medical director says if you go and pick your mail up from your letterbox and you come back and you have to go to bed for two days, you've got a problem. It's just feeling absolutely exhausted after doing just minor things. Some people with serious post-exertional malaise Apart from having orthostatic intolerance where they have difficulty standing up, heart rate goes up, blood pressure goes down, have difficulty just walking to the kitchen or walking to the toilet. Now, in a healthy person, those kinds of activities would not cause the severe reactions that that people with MECFS get, requiring them to go to bed or lie down for two days. It's feeling completely exhausted after the mildest of movement or activity. And then there's the brain fog as well. This is all part of the cognitive dysfunction that occurs. So brain fog, feeling vague. And and one of the things with post-exertional malaise, it's not just physical. And I've learned all of this in the last 12 months, even concentrating or looking at a computer or being on a phone call is just too much. So it's also cognitive strain and stress. All of that can cause someone who has got MECFS to to crash. It doesn't necessarily have to be that you've gone to the letterbox to pick your mail up or done, done some kind of task around the house. It can just be that, you know, it's too much for your mind and and your consciousness to cope with. And so I have lots of examples of people who say they can't take a Zoom meeting because it's too much visually, too busy. It makes them too exhausted. They'd prefer to take a phone call that's an audio call instead. And some people just have to manage their energy envelope in such a way that they say, sorry, I can only take a couple of calls a week. It's very individual and it depends on the severity of each individual condition. You're listening to Ian Wolf on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Do you think part of the social stigma is also that in society people seem to be used to the idea that you either you get sick and you recover or you get sick and you die? They're not used to the idea that there's some people who just stay sick and that you often disability has to be visible. Either you're in a wheelchair or you're using a cane and we can see that you're disabled and you need that disabled spot or you need some support. How do we change that? Well, I think that the definition of disability needs to be redefined. The other thing that needs to be redefined is the definition of impairment. And there needs to be some consideration given to the length of impairment. 
not everybody with ME-CFS is going to become bed-bound. If ME-CFS is diagnosed early and if patients learn about pacing early on and how to ensure that they don't exhaust their energy envelope the minute they start feeling better, the faster people try to go out of being sick, the longer it can take for them to enter into a recovery phase. So all of those things, duration, obviously severity, the definition of impairment, the definition of disability, all need to be taken into consideration as well as the fact that there is this underpinning principle that because MECFS is a disease, it falls into the illness category rather than the disability category. And that's why, you know, really both ends need to be redefined in order to ensure that we remove the barriers to entry that are being placed in front of people with MECFS. I mean, I've said this many times and I've borrowed a, a phrase that I heard someone say a while ago. In what universe is it acceptable for, first of all, people with a condition like MECFS to be ignored? In what universe is it acceptable that when people are so sick, they go to bed and they stay there for 10 years and there's no one saying, hello, we need to really do something about this, you know. And I've heard of people who have waited years to get onto the NDIS, can't get onto the DSP. People are forced to go and pay $3,000 for a functional assessment from an occupational therapist. I mean, who's got that money? Most people with MECFS are on the poverty line. So, you know, it's just most people with MECFS just haven't got the financial resources to pay for that kind of an assessment privately. Just haven't. It's just ridiculous. And if you don't get that sort of paid assessment... The end, I've looked at the NDIS forms. They're really complicated to fill in. They're an enormous oh, yeah. bunch of paper for you to go through. So many questions. And if you're not a medical professional, how would you even know what supports are available that you should ask for because you're not an expert? Yeah, that's the other thing. And that's the other, thing, other reason why Merge Australia is really pushing for the development of an optimal care pathway which really is a referral pathway for GPs. So on the one hand, uh, the cornerstone of our work is GP education because the GPs need to know, A, how to diagnose MECFS. They also need to understand how to distinguish long COVID from MECFS and whether, in fact, the person has got one in the same thing. That's critical. But once all of the tests have been done and the you know examinations have been done, et cetera, the, the GP needs to be able to refer the patient on for other assistance. And so the person that has come to the GP that has been feeling dreadful for a very long time, let's take COVID out of the equation for a moment, who thinks they've got MECFS or something, they may, may not even know. Once the doctor is established because he's gone through our pathway and knows what to do and how to identify MECFS, they then can't do an awful lot more because 
our health system is divided into consultations that are timed and it is very difficult and, and, and nor should the GP have to enter into things like sitting down with the patient and helping them fill out an NDIS form. What we need from our GPs is to write that letter that says this is a diagnosis of MECFS and then pass them on to an organisation like Emerge where we've already got a federally funded case management service run by a clinician who's a nurse. And what we're doing is developing a multidisciplinary coordinated care service where we will have a social worker and a psychologist and a physiotherapist and an OT on staff. And doctors can then refer via telehealth. It does not need to be done in person. We'll refer patients to us as we get patients now anyway who come to our, our clinical nurse for whatever needs they have. And we would triage those referrals so that the patient gets exactly what they need. So if they need to speak to a social worker to help them fill out an NDIS form, which patients say to us all the time, you know, they just don't have the energy for, their brain fog doesn't allow them to focus, all that kind of stuff, then they can they can speak with a social worker and, and, and get that underway. Or the reality is that if you have been, like so many people are, a busy person, you've, you've had a career or you've been to university or you were doing year 12 or whatever, and all of a sudden you, you either get a virus or something happens that leads you to get MECFS, you know, your life changes. It's described by some patients as a living death. And there are issues of grief and loss and mental health issues that people need support in. So people need support from suitably qualified people because their disease has robbed them of so much of their life. It is not because their disease is psychosomatic it's not the other way around. It's the fact that their disease has robbed them most of their life. And it's not only robbed them. If they're a young person, it's robbed their family of aspirations and dreams of what their child would become. You know, we've had parents contact us to say, we're in our 60s, our 70s, and, and our child is now 31, been bedridden for 10 years we have to make arrangements if something happens to us, where will our child live because they can't live in the family home because they can't look after it? You know, what arrangements have to be? But these are dreadful situations for families to have to go through. And, and, and to go through that on your own without any allied health support, that's just criminal, really. So people do need support. They do need some form of support in terms of maybe some light physiotherapy under the guidance of a physio that understands MECFS. It's not great at exercise therapy, but it's under the auspices of an MECFS physio and the, we will be doing some training for physios particularly on MECFS in hopefully the second part of the year. And then there's the functional assessment done by an occupational therapist. 
we'd rather employ the occupational therapist and try to provide those functional assessments without patients having to pay $3,000 a pop or without government having to employ 20 occupational therapists around the country in clinics that are currently flooded with long COVID patients. And an MECFS patient won't even get a look in the door. And MECFS has not been well-funded for scientific research ever, has it? No, no. Just because $3 million was allocated in 2018-2019 for several projects doesn't mean that the federal government is supporting MECFS research. The reality is that we need a major injection. I mean, research costs money without a doubt. But we need a major injection into MECFS research. We just need a major injection into MECFS research, support for patients. We need investment, as per our State of the Nation report, into GP education, the creation of an optimal care pathway, the development of clinical guidelines, biomedical research, and then we need the capacity to be able to advocate for changes to the NDIS and the DSP. That's what we need. That's our manifesto for the next five years. That's what we're going to be going and that's what we are going to members of parliament about now and we will be continuing our push after the federal election when we know who the new government is. There is still time for people to hop on our website and go on to the State of the Nation report, which is on our website, And if you click under the report, you have the opportunity to put your details in and that will bring up your local member of parliament, customise the letter and press submit and that will go straight to your member of parliament. We've already had in excess of, I think, 16, 1700 people do that. We have two and a half thousand people in Australia with MECFS. We need the voices of people with MECFS to be heard because people with MECFS matter and their votes will count. And that was 250,000 people in Australia that are diagnosed with MECFS. It's the same all around the world. So it's a lot of people and when the new diagnostic guidelines get in, maybe there'll be more. Yeah. Well, a lot of those people, you know, may not be diagnosed. So, but we've got... 60% of that 250,000 are either housebound or bedbound. It's a huge number of people that are getting no support at all. and It's huge. And it's like, oh, let's just ignore those stats. We, We won't look at them. It's not a big deal. But you know what? Those are all people, if they're over the age of 18, who have to vote. Well, this is very true. We're not pushing anything here other than ensuring that the voices of people with MECFS are heard And what we're trying to do at Emerge is make it as easy as possible. We've also got a petition that is going to be put up today on our website as an infographic. It's been running since the commencement of MECFS Awareness Week last week. And uh, today is actually MECFS Awareness Day globally. And that petition is for the federal government, whoever gets in, to support GP education and patient support services. So, so necessary. Emerge Australia runs on the smell of an oily rag. We have very few staff. We have a huge agenda and we need 
the help of government and funders in order to deliver what we need to for the MECFS community. Well, Anne Wilson, thank you very much. My pleasure. That was Anne Wilson, the CEO of Emerge Australia, talking about the changes we need to see for people suffering from myalgic encephalomyelitis chronic fatigue syndrome. You can find out more at emerge.org.au. Whatever you work at, son, you're still a citizen with the power to vote. Living in a scientific age, we need citizens who know enough about science to make intelligent decisions about what they do. We've used science to, to prolong life, to increase security and happiness, but it can also be used for destruction. Are we going to use it constructively to promote peace and, and give the world freedom from want? It'll be up to you, and you too. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Are you a scientist, artist, biohacker or maker who'd like to be interviewed about your work? Would your company like to sponsor Diffusion? Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please subscribe to the Diffusion Science Radio channel on youtube.com slash c slash diffusionradio and rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 28 stations on the Community Radio Network, including Radio Blue Mountains 89.1 FM in New South Wales, 8 C in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2MVR in Nambucca Valley, 3MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, City Park Radio 7LTN in Launceston, Tasmania, and 2XXFM in Canberra. Diffusion is narrowcast on Indigo FM 88 in northeast Victoria. Diffusion is syndicated globally on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than a thousand previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com, where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Make a donation through paypal.me slash ianwolf, or join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolf. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.